Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. You who are greater than our hearts, come and make your faithful mercies known. The mind of Christ to us impart. Your constant mind in us be shown. That's our prayer and that's our plea as we come to the Word of God. As we come to the Word of God, we are on the eve of a major election. And it, in, in such a place is a very difficult place for a pastor. What does a pastor say in the political turmoil of our day and a couple of days before the rest of the nation votes? Well, if he's wise, he doesn't say a whole lot. He doesn't say too much more than what he said in prayer. We want people of character, but we also want people of godly policies. We don't want the judgment of the Lord. We want His blessing. We find ourselves, and you know this, I know this, we find ourselves in a political and a cultural mess, don't we? You can all say, Amen. We do. But I'll say one more thing about the election. If you think we're facing a political, cultural mess in our day, you had not seen anything yet. You had not seen nothing yet. Look at the passage that's before us. 2 Samuel chapter 19. It's long. Bear with me. Don't go to sleep. Hang in there. We've got to do it all. Because it's the Lord's Word. And it's the Lord's Word by God's providence on the Lord's day, this day before a national election. As we come to this word, remember where we are. David ruled well in the kingdom. David showed his covenant faithfulness and love, as I said, and his justice to those within the kingdom. But he also extended it and offered it to those outside the kingdom. But then we know that David failed, did he not? When he should have been off at war, he's at home and he's looking and he glances and he sees Bathsheba and he wants her and he takes her. And then he has her husband murdered. We see then the prophet Nathan coming and confronting him with that holy, divine boldness. Thou art the man. And we see David, by sovereign grace, humbled confessing, asking for forgiveness. We see forgiveness granted, but we also see uh, that the father would choose to show fatherly discipline 
to this David and allow temporal judgments and punishments, we might say, to fall upon him. And we see them coming in, in quick succession. We see the child of Bathsheba die. We see Amnon sinning against Tamar. We see David not doing a thing about it. We see Absalom in the, in the absence of justice, taking justice into his own hands and seeking revenge and having his half-brother Amnon murdered. We see Absalom fleeing. We see Joab bringing him back. We see Absalom beginning his coup. We see him courting all sides. We see him launching into a civil war. We see David fleeing from Jerusalem down, 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 across the River Jordan. And then we come to that battle that battle against Absalom and his forces, that battle in which Absalom's hair catches in the trees and he hangs between heaven and earth. And we hear David crying, What? Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. And now we're asking ourselves what's going to happen next. Chapter 19. It was told, Joab. Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king's grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. And because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you, for you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Woe. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed, over us is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you're not the commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. 
And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, son of Gerah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Don't let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I'll saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king. And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now Barzillai the Gileite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. And Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahat Naim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I'll provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please just let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. 
But here's your servant, Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I'll do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. And he returned to his own home. And the king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with them. And all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all of Israel, all the men of Israel, came to the king and said to him, said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away, and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We've ten shares in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were, not, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be. Now, if you're a parent, you recognize that last part, right? It's like kids fighting back and forth. What a, what a, as they say these days, what a hot mess. I mean, this chapter just continues what we've been seeing Sunday after Sunday. David had descended, had he not? Fleeing from Absalom, he'd gone down, 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 down. Remember, to the lowest part of the earth. Across the River Jordan. And now what do we see? He's coming back. He's ascending. He's going where? To the city of the king. To the city of peace. He's being what? Re-enthroned, as it were. And yet as he's making his way, as we read this chapter, as it unfolds, we see political intrigue, political haggling, political angles, and not only political angles, but we also see the very personal. All these personal angles going on. We see all this, and we see that evidently, and I'm sure no one in this whole mess of a story, no one had any certainty about what would happen next. And as I said to the crew this morning, to the congregation at nine, this sounds familiar. We find ourselves in a country that's full of political intrigue, right? Political haggling, political fighting, forces against forces. And yet we also see in all that a bunch of personal angles involved and none of us are certain of what's going to happen. Particularly not certain what's going to happen coming this week. And so it's real easy, I think, for us to take this passage and jump right to our national context. But brothers and sisters, let's not do that. Remember, the United States of America is not a theocratic nation. We are not this mash of church and state. We are a constitutional republic. This text isn't first spoken to the nation of the United States of America. It's spoken rather to the kingdom of God as it's expressed in this nation is spoken to the church. It's spoken to us. 
And it's telling us about the church. And it's also pointing us to Jesus. Now, how's it doing this? Again, we've got all kinds of political intrigue and fighting. We've got pro-David forces and we've got anti-David forces, right? We've also got this angle. We've got the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. And there's tension between the two. We've got rogues. We've got hotheads. We've got the, the humble. We've got the grateful. We've got the noble and the ignoble. We've got a grieving king who had to be brought to reality, shaken, had to have an intervention with him. And we've got a grieving king who on every step of the way back to Jerusalem is making political calculation after political calculation after political calculation. So how does this help us understand the church and point us to Jesus? Let's see. And let's do it this way. Let's look at the host of characters in the chapter. We'll be quick. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be brief. We can't mention all of them, but I'm going to mention several. We're going to look at the host of characters we find here, and then we're going to think a little bit more deeply about David. Let's dive in. The host of characters. The first one I want you to see is Joab. In your face, grisly military man. Right? General. If you've been in the U.S. military, if you've been in any sort of military, used to we had Tom Perkins here and you could say the U.S. or the British uh, military. If you've been in the military, you faced a Joab in your life. Joab is rough. He's abrupt. He's unfeeling. Sometimes he's disobedient to orders. Sometimes he's murderous. And yet, as you read those first few verses, sometimes Joab was right. He knew David is bringing shame upon his men who've just fought for him. In his grieving over their enemy, they had risked their lives. And if he keeps it up, he's not going to have anybody. In that, Joab's right, but he's right in a wrong way. He doesn't confront the Lord's anointed in the way he should have. And yet what you need to see, and what I want you to see with each and every one of these characters, Joab, sinner that he was, scoundrel that he was, grisly guy that he was, Joab was in David's kingdom. He's going to be sidelined. He lost his job. But he's in David's kingdom. And that brings us to the guy who took his job, Amasa. Now, Amasa is like Joab. He's a nephew of David. But unlike Joab, Amasa was very public in his treachery. No disobeying orders kind of behind David's back. No, he's very treacherous. He's a traitor. He goes over to Absalom. He's an outright traitor. And yet, you see what David does? He's a traitor that David what? Elevates to being his great new general. And did he deserve such an honor? Absolutely not. No. Amasa, former traitor in David's kingdom. Shammai. Here we come back to Shammai. 
You know, after our first encounter with Shammai, it's one of those characters that you would just rather be done with, right? The, he, he was the one who was hurling the taunts, hurling the curses, throwing the rocks, throwing the dirt upon a retreating David and his people, shaming them with everything he had. Now what's he doing? He's coming back. He's groveling with the best of all grovelers. He's eating, what do, they, what do we say? He's eating crow. A big pie of crow. And he's feigning what? I've sinned. I've sinned, king. You know I've sinned. I've sinned really bad. Really badly against you. I've sinned. I've sinned. He's confessing, feigning confession, and he's feigning repentance. He's playing a pious game, is he not? It seems right. It seems good. But you all have your doubts, don't you, about Shammai? He's doing it for a political end and self-interest. And yet, get this, he is in David's kingdom. Abishai, I think a lot of us can, <laughs> can, can identify with Abishai. I mean, remember he's the one who, when Shammai was hurling the taunts the first time, wanted to do what? Yeah, take, take Shammai's head off. And he wants to do it again, does he not? He has to be restrained. And what does he get for that? David does what? Rebukes him and shelves him. And yet, even though he's rebuked and even though he's shelved, he's what? Still in David's kingdom. And now we get to the beautiful character. One of the most beautiful characters of all of Holy Scripture. And if you haven't fallen in love with this guy up until this point, something's wrong with your heart. Mephibosheth. David doubts him. How could he doubt him? He's looking at him. And Mephibosheth has not trimmed his nails. He's got long toenails and fingernails. He hasn't cut his beard. He hasn't bathed. He hasn't, he hasn't washed his clothes. What are all those signs of? Grief. Why would he be grieving? Because his king was gone and a new guy was in his place that shouldn't have been. And he's left in Jerusalem doing those very public things. And Absalom would have seen them taking great risks. But what else could he do? He was lame. And if his servant should trick him and steal his donkey away, what could he have done other than what he did? He did what he could do. And one, one pastor and missionary tells a story here, and it's a beautiful story of a, a real-life boy, Sudanese boy. His name was Orop, O-R-O-P, Orop. Uh, he had learning disabilities. He, he, he just, he couldn't, he couldn't write his name. But he wanted to go to school. Oh, he wanted to go to school. He wanted to go to the missionary school. He wanted to go to missionary school. And he, and he went and he tried and he couldn't do it. And so they they had to give his spot to someone who could learn. But that didn't stop Orop. He went and sat outside the school and listened. 
And he listened to the stories about Jesus. And, and then old Rob said, I'm going to tell these stories to my buddies. And he gathers a bunch of friends and he starts telling them. But guess what he does? He gets it all mangled and twisted, so twisted, so messed up, that when the missionary hears, the missionary has to say, oh Rob, you can't tell these stories. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't tell the stories about Jesus because you're not telling them right. And you know, that's heartbreaking to the missionary and it's heartbreaking to the little old Rob. And the missionary comes upon an idea. He thinks, well, you know, I go out to these villages and I preach and teach outside of our mission station here. Maybe I'll take old Rob with me and I'll ask old Rob to carry the Bible. So he asks him. His face beams. Yes, he'd do it. He gets to be the bearer of God's Word. And every morning before the dawn, there's Orop outside the door of the missionary ready to go. Where are we going next? What's the village de jour? Now, where are we going? Orop did what he could do. Orop also was with friends playing one day by the river. And all of a sudden, a crocodile shows up and takes one of the other little boys, grabs him. And all the rest of Orop's friends, they rush out of the water, they run. Not Orop. Orop runs and jumps in and tries to fight the crocodile. Lo and behold, the crocodile releases the little friend and instead chomps down on Orop. And there would be really nothing left to bury. Orop had done what he could do. Before his death, he had oftentimes told his mother that he wasn't afraid of dying. Mom, I'm not afraid of dying because if I die, Jesus is just going to meet me and he's going to take me home. And after her son dies, those words just sank into her heart. And the Lord used them to open her heart to where she looked to Jesus as her Savior. Orop had done what Orop could do. Mephibosheth, brothers and sisters, did what Mephibosheth could do. He was lame. He was limited. But he was loyal. Dirty hair, long beard, dirty clothes, long toenails, long fingernails. Humble, faithful, lover of God, and lover of the Lord's anointed. Mephibosheth, by grace, was inwardly and outwardly a part of David's kingdom. Two more. Brazilii, the old man, 80 years old. That's not so old anymore. I don't know about some of y'all, but 80 is seeming younger and younger by the day. Brazilii couldn't hear anymore. Can't really taste anymore. Brazilii comes to greet his friend. Gentle and generous old saint that he was. He was like St. Benedict would be in the future. St. Benedict, who began his monastic order with a certain rule, some rules to be applied, and one of those rules to be used there in the monastery was that any time anyone came and knocked at the door, you let them in. You receive them as if he or she were Christ. 
You consider them as Christ's guest in your monastery. That's Barzillai. He was hospitable. He took care of King David in his day of need. Now he's wishing his good friend goodbye. The living east of Jordan, Barzillai, in David's kingdom. One last character, Kimham. Most likely Barzillai's son. And based on the fidelity and the life of faith of Barzillai, what does David do? He receives Kimham as his own to be a part of the covenant people of God to even live basically in the king's house. Kimham in David's kingdom. Think of this host of characters. Notice scoundrels, sinners, sufferers, saints, and sons. All part of the Old Testament people of God. All apart of the Old Testament, at least outwardly, all apart of the Old Testament visible church. The expression of God's kingdom on earth. And does that have anything to say to us living in the year 2020? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. The outward church, yes, the outward church of the New Testament, the outward church today, is that entity on earth that expresses, is to express, the kingdom of Christ. And that entity, then in David's day and in our day, that entity is a mixed There are professing believers and their children, but not all those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 9, not all of Israel belong to Israel. It's a truth of all time. May this truth do two things. May it correct and check our thinking and may it fuel our prayers. May it check our thinking. Let's, let's not be naive. Sometimes people are. They come to faith, they enter a church, they join a church, they become a part of a church and they get in there and all of a sudden they realize not everybody acts like a Christian should act. Right? Let's not be surprised when we find ourselves among brothers and sisters in Christ, professing brothers and sisters in Christ, and not everybody's at the same level of Christian maturity. Let's not be surprised that when we find ourselves in the church, there will be some who, again, profess Christ, but they don't possess Him. They mouth words, but they don't mean them. Some are Christian in name, and some, by God's grace, Christian in name, and in heart. The church consists of scoundrels, sinners, 
sufferers, saints, and sons. Don't be naive. But secondly, let this truth fuel your prayers. Who among us doesn't want to be like Barzillai when we're 80 years old? A man of humility, a man of generosity, a man of fidelity, a man of love. And who of us wants to be like Shammai? A man who mouths words, but doesn't mean them. Who of us wants to be like Joab? Or a son of thunder in the New Testament? Rash. Who of us wants to be that? Oh Lord, enable us. Enable each and every one of us. We should be crying out for ourselves and for one another. Enable us to be not like, not like Shammai, not like Joab, but to be like whom? Brazilii. And to be like whom? Mephibosheth. That we know our need, we know our lameness, we know our weakness, we know our brokenness, and we cry out unto God. That's the host of characters. Now we'll be even briefer, I promise, David. Think about this king. And think about this king in this kingdom of sinners. When you read this chapter, on, on initial blush, you think he's doing a pretty good job, right? He's being pretty nice. He's being, you know, he's being gracious to these various characters. And yet, when you dig down a little deeper, you soon realize what? It's not all roses, is it? It's getting back at Joab. Done with you. That was one step too far. He's politically maneuvering Amasa. Hey, I'll make you my general. And everybody that's following you will follow me. He's shelving Abishai. He's showing clemency to Shammai. Though he won't forget his sins. And he's cutting off dear Mephibosheth almost in, in, in mid-story. And shortchanging him. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll give half of it to Ziba, and half of it to you. And all for political expediency. Is he? Was he the king that Israel needed? Was he the king Judah needed? Was he the king Benjamin needed? Was he the king of grace that they all needed? No. Is he the king of grace to whom we look? No. Dear ones, his flaws are too obvious. His imperfections abound. And he's, he's self-centered even in the best of actions. He's a fallen man. And he's not the king we need. Dear ones, we are not to trust in David. We're to place our faith and trust in whom? The son of David. The son of David who, remember, headed this same route 
from the river Jordan up to Jerusalem, this same King Jesus who rode in on a donkey into the city of peace to make peace, to secure peace for His people in His life and in His death and in His resurrection through His body and through His blood to bring perfect peace to people like you and me who have been at enmity with Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the King you need. He's the King of grace. And the peace that He has secured, never distorted by compromise. The sacrifice that He offered in His body, without spot or what? Blemish. Perfect. And His triumph, over all his enemies and all yours will one day be perfectly seen by all. And every knee shall bow and tongue confess he's the king of grace. He's the one we needed or he's the one we rejected. Which will it be for you on that day, brothers and sisters? Will you be a Shemai who acts like you have trusted in the King of Grace, but you haven't? Or will you be like Mephibosheth by God's grace, recognizing your brokenness, recognizing your weakness, Recognizing your need. We're about to come to the table of the Lord. This table is not for the Shemais of the world. This table is for Mephibosheths, sinners in need, looking to the only King of grace. Let's pray. Call us, O glorious God, by the working of your Spirit even now in our hearts. Call us sinners to come to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.